Good morning, everyone. Good to have all of you here this morning on this Sunday before we celebrate the birth of our Lord. Today is the third Sunday in our Christmas Advent sermon series. As many of you know, Advent is a Christian season of preparation consisting of four Sundays leading up to the Nativity of Christ, His birth. Uh, Many churches, and you probably know this, uh, many churches will light Advent candles during this season on the church calendar leading to Christmas. There are four small candles, which are usually red in color, each one symbolizing what Christ made possible because of His birth into the world. Hope, peace, love, joy. Then there's a fifth candle that is larger, usually white in color, and it is lit the week of Christmas, symbolizing the Christ child. Here at Grace Life, we are celebrating the Advent season this year, not by lighting candles, but by choosing four traditional hymns, and you have an insert in your bulletin that tells you what those four hymns, Christmas carols, are. And as we look at the titles of those carols and we think about them, we're trying to think of what takeaways might be embedded or reflected, even in the very titles of those songs. Today's carol, as you will see from that insert and also the front of your bulletin, today's carol is a very familiar one, as all of them have been. This third week in Advent, it is away in a manger. Very familiar. Interestingly, for um, many years, the writing of this song, Away in a Manger, was attributed to Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer, Brit, a, a German teacher and priest. Uh, he was a catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And the carol was credited to him maybe because the first two verses that he allegedly wrote appeared for the first time in a Lutheran hymnal in 1885. It was said that he wrote the words to those first two verses to sing to his children. He had six of them. And he might have sung to them, them to them as he was tucking them into to bed. Some of them might have been old enough to actually sing along with him. But that accounting of Luther having written Away in a Manger was so popular and it was so widespread that the next publisher to pick up that carol actually titled it Luther's Cradle Hymn. And if you look in some old hymn books you will see Luther's cradle hymn, which we know as Away in a Manger. So maybe it's not surprising that most often when this song song is is rendered uh, in Christmas performances, it is sung by little children. And I want you to listen now as I read the opening two verses. You probably know them by heart. The first two verses of this carol, and I want you to imagine if only in a very fanciful way of Luther singing those first two verses 
to his children. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. Now, I'm not certain, beyond a doubt, that Luther wrote that carol, the first two verses, or that he sang it to his children. But it's a great story, right? There's nothing that really corroborates that so that we can say for sure he wrote the hymn and he wrote the first two verses of it. But it's a great story. Over the years as, a, as an educator, I took students, literally thousands of students from Milton Hershey School to historic sites around the country celebrating our nation's early history. And at every site, there was always a human interest story that grabbed the attention of the kids. In fact, an NBC News affiliate tagged along with us one year to Gettysburg just to hear some of those stories. Occasionally, I would have to say to students after telling those stories that kids, some aspects of that story that I just told you may not be totally accurate, but it's a good story, isn't it? I was also known for making up a few stories to tell the kids. One of them, one of my favorite, was that General George Gordon Meade who was from Philly, I told them, you know, it's rumored that he lost his season tickets to the Eagles game while he was here on the battlefield. And the older kids would kind of roll their eyes and the little kids would say, where was it that you think he lost it on the battlefield? (laughs) But when we tell this story that we're going to look at this morning, the story of Christ's birth. We don't need to question its validity. We don't need to question its veracity. We know it's true because it comes from the pages of Scripture. It's not a whisper-down-the-lane kind of story that was passed from person to person generationally, maybe a few little hiccups along the way. But it's a story that we've gotten directly from God. It's the story that He wanted us to hear right from Him. So let's look at that story in Luke chapter 2, which Larry read in part for us this morning. Verse 4 of that chapter, of course, finds Joseph and Mary, who was pregnant at the time, finds them in the town of Bethlehem where they'd gone to register in a census that was being taken. And while they were there, Luke chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that the time came for her to give birth. We don't know exactly how far along Mary was in her pregnancy when she and Joseph started out on that trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but we do know that it was a distance of about 70 miles 
and some pretty rugged terrain to traverse. Not a necessarily pleasant journey for someone who was expectant. When they finally arrived in Bethlehem, no place to lodge. No room at any of the Bethlehem inns. Days Inn, Hilton Inn, Hampton Inn, they were all booked full. <laughs> they couldn't even find a hospital. Of course, we know that's, uh, they weren't looking for a hospital. They weren't looking for a hotel. They were just looking for a place to lodge that would get them in out of the weather so that Mary would have a refuge for her child to be born. Some of you are thinking, I know exactly where they found refuge. I know where they found shelter. It was in a little barn. I remember when, my, when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> my dad used to say to me if I went outside and left the door hanging open, would you close the door? Do you think you were born in a barn? <laughs> well, I knew I wasn't born in a barn, but I always thought that Jesus was born in a barn because of the mention of a manger, feeding trough for animals. It's why nativity scenes most always feature a stable, which we associate with a barn. But there's no such mention of that in Scripture. Some scholars and historians believe that it was more likely that Mary and Joseph found cover in a place that was much more primitive than a little barn, something that may have been more akin to a cave-like structure where travelers could shelter their animals, and there was a, a stone feeding trough in that cave for the animals. In any event, it it wouldn't have been a place that any of us would have wanted our children to be born in. So, what's God thinking when he has his son born in such a primitive place? After all, it wasn't happenstance that Jesus was born where he was born. God the Father orchestrated all of this. They didn't end up in this less than ideal birthing milieu surrounded by stinking animals and all the mess that goes with that. This place, I mean, think about it. It had to be just a veritable breeding ground for germs and bacteria and who knows what else. It was messy. It was miserable. One theologian said when Jesus came down to earth, he came all the way down. It was a very lowly birth in a very lowly place. Not a regal birth in a royal place, but a lowly birth in a lowly place. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, he did. He was born among us, and he lived among us. And his humble beginning on this earth set the stage for what would be the defining narrative of his life and his ministry. Not so much to the high and mighty, but rather to the poor and lowly. 
probably why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, verse 27, chose what is foolish in the world. He chose what is weak. He chose, verse 28, what is low, what is despised, so that no human being might boast in his presence. God doesn't like boasting. We do, but he doesn't. The irony, of course, is that we really don't have anything to boast about because all we can boast about is in God and because of Christ who became to us, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, wisdom, something we were bereft of. He became wisdom. He became righteousness. He became sanctification. He became redemption. So when God saved you, And when God saved me, though we are usually loath to admit it, he chose what is low. He chose what is weak. He chose what is despised. But those categories, (laughs) they offend our modern sensibilities. We may think that it is we. Who are high and lifted up. Not so. When Paul was in the saddle on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was feeling pretty high and mighty on his way to murder Christians. But when God knocked him off his high horse. He wasn't so mighty anymore. He was suddenly weak. He was suddenly lowly. He was blind. He had to be led into Damascus by the hand of a little child. His pride, his ego took quite a hit at that point in time. Must have been humiliating for him. Has God ever had to knock you off a high horse of pride? I can answer that question for myself. He has knocked me off a horse, not just once or twice, but a number of times. And God has many means to be able to do that. Humility, is that something that's manifested much in our lives in Christian churches today? There are churches that have so many people on high horses that when you walk in, you think you might have walked into the OK Corral because they're starting this range war in the church. Who has the most authority? Who wields the most influence? Who has the most visibility? Oh, we think of ourselves that way, high and lifted up. How 
has it happened that we who serve a God who was born in a manger and about whom Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, he made himself nothing. That is, he voluntarily set aside certain privileges that, that he had with the Father and he came to earth and he was born in the form of a man. He humbled himself was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. How do we think about that kind of humility? How do we look at the humility of Christ and not think that it's something expected of us as his followers? The hallmark of Jesus' life was was humility right from the start. So how is it that we who say we serve this God... How is it that we have often elevated ourselves to places of self-righteousness, prideful self-righteousness, where we suffer the illusion that we're all that, we're really something, we're hot stuff? I think of the shepherds in the Christmas story out in the field, watching over their flock by night, Luke chapter 2, verse 8 tells us. These were the people, the shepherds, to whom God chose to announce the birth of his son. I mean, shepherds, really? You mean he chose to go to shepherds to make this announcement? These guys were about as far from high and mighty as you could get. Talk about the low and despised. Now, shepherds weren't people of status. They weren't people that had sterling reputations. They weren't the high rollers. They weren't the high flyers. They weren't the movers and shakers. It's not that shepherding was an illegitimate vocation, We know the psalmist David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Jesus referred to himself in John chapter 10 verse 11 as the good shepherd. But generally, back in this day of the Christmas story, shepherds were considerably low on the social metrics. In fact, in some respects, they were actually despised. They were thought of as dishonorable unsavory, so much so that they were not allowed to testify in court. My grandpa Burkholder might have used the German word scheister (laughs) to describe these guys. Have you heard that one? Scheister. It's a German word that generally, broadly, refers to somebody who's a cheater, who's a trickster, who at the end of the day is only out to get your money. They're shysters. Your daughter came home and said, Daddy, I met this really nice shepherd boy. Uh, No. No, no shepherd boys for you. Uh, Usually they would get the thumbs down because that's the kind of reputation, generally speaking, that shepherds had. And these were the people, low and despised, 
not very honorable, not very high on the social metrics. These were the people that God chose to come to by the angels. They would be the first on the scene at Jesus' birth. Not the upper crust, the shepherds. Not the Rotarians, not the seminarians, the shepherds. Not the elites, but the lowly. <laughs> this, this had to drive the Pharisees nuts. <laughs> you, you remember in Matthew chapter 9, the reaction that they had when they saw Jesus in the company of tax collectors and other people that they considered disreputable, they asked Jesus' disciples in Matthew 9, 11, why does your teacher hang out with people like that? I'm paraphrasing. Why does he hang out with people like that? You could hear the scorn in their voices. Jesus, of course, heard what they said. Verse 12 tells us. Jesus had pretty good hearing, by the way. And he said, um, you want an answer to that question? Why I hang out with people like this? Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I didn't come to call righteous people like you guys. I came to call sinners I came to call the lonely. I came to call the desperate. I came to call those who weren't sure where to turn. Of course, the irony was that the Pharisees didn't think of themselves as sinners. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that. I'm still a sinner saved by grace. So are you. You're still a sinner. That was the shepherd class. Sinners. Pharisees were all about themselves. We know a lot about the Pharisees. Everything they did was about themselves. Do we do that in church? These guys were bloated with religious pride. Jesus hated it then. And he hates it now. And he excoriated the Pharisees for their pride. He excoriated them for their hypocrisy. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. He said over and over again in Matthew chapter 23. That's a reprimand that's a little stronger than shame on you. No, he said, woe, woe, woe to you. You do everything to be seen by men. Is that how I operate in the church? Is that how I function in the church as a child of God, as a follower of the humble Jesus born in a manger, maybe in a cave? Jesus said to them, the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you know, when you do good deeds, you just want to be seen by people. That's all it is. When you pray, you stand on the most trafficked intersections 
of town. So people are sure to see you. When you go to the mall, which was a marketplace in their day, he said, you want people to bow to you. You want people to curtsy to you. You want people to say, oh, yes, your highness. Oh, yes, your majesty. You go to a wedding and you want to sit at the head table even if you don't know who the people are who are getting married. (laughs) When you go to a show, you want to be in the front row because you are the show. You are the show. Religious peacocks. (laughs) Pharisees had something I call ornamentation that was part of their religious garb. Jesus referenced this when he talked about phylacteries and fringes and tassels in Matthew chapter 23. These were little leather boxes that they actually strapped on their foreheads and they strapped on their arms and the tassels were something that they attached to the bottom of their robes. It was supposed to have some religious Meaning, it was supposed to have some religious significance, but that was pretty much lost in the way they flaunted all of it in the name of piety. Jesus said they would would broaden these bands and they would lengthen the tassels to be sure nobody would miss them. All a show. Just a show. (laughs) At the time, I didn't, it was kind of strange. I didn't know why I conjured up this image in my head when I was preparing my, my message. Did every, any of you ever see the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia with their string bands? I mean, they marched down the street. You could watch them on television. It was fabulous to see. They marched down the streets. They had uh, the, 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 the feathered plumes and, and the bright colors and It was something else. You couldn't miss them. Magnificent. Now, I don't think the Pharisees quite outfitted themselves the way the mummers do, but their outfits were pretty flashy with their phylacteries, their tassels. But they might as well have not worn them because... All of it wasn't worth a lick. It amounted to much ado about nothing because they did it all out of pride, self-righteous pride. Religious peacocks. And that pretentious masquerade, which was an affront to Almighty God, was a part of everything they did. Everything they did putting themselves out front strategically, intentionally. You know anybody like that? Who names the name of Christ? Am I like that? Maybe I have been at times. Maybe you have been at times. But contrast the way we live our lives trying to imitate the humble Christ who was born in a manger, who subjected himself to all kinds of abuses, 
from people around him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. MacArthur once went over a, a, a detailed list of some of what Jesus Christ suffered, which was all a part of his humility. Would I suffer these things today? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've signed on. Jesus was hated without a cause, John 15 tells us. He was persecuted, John 15. He was homeless, Matthew 8. He was betrayed, Matthew 26. He was condemned, Matthew 20. He was despised, Luke 18. He was lifted up on a cross, John 12. He was mocked, Mark 10. He was numbered with criminals, Luke 22. Wow. Son of God. That's some humility. It's easy to read about. But here comes the the hard part. Here's the rub. We look at Christ's humility and then we read what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. What he says to me. He says it to you too. Philippians chapter 2. You need to have the mind of Christ. You need to exhibit the same love as Christ. Don't do anything from rivalry. Don't do anything from conceit, Philippians 2, 3. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, that we are not adequate. This hurts. We are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Right after Jesus launched his public ministry in Matthew 4 and had called disciples to himself, he was on the heels of speaking to masses of people. Matthew 5.1 tells us that he went up on a mountain. And when he had sat down, he called his disciples to come to him. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that he went up on that mountain, he sat down. And verse 2 tells us that he opened his mouth and taught them. And the very first thing out of his mouth was this blessed are the people who have great talent <laughs> blessed are the people who can teach Sunday school like nobody else blessed are the worship leaders who stand up front and lead their congregations in worship blessed are these gifted people and those gifted people and they stand out and everybody looks at them and is in awe of them and says my look at them even the way they dress just the look on their face you can tell they're holy you can tell they're close to god 
Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the happy, or happy are the people. Uh, Fortunate are the people. Blissful are the people who are poor in spirit. This speaks to humility, deep humility. MacArthur's note in this particular passage says it's the deep humility, those who are blessed, possess the deep humility of recognizing their utter spiritual bankruptcy. You got nothing. Not one spiritual penny to rub against another to impress God. Probably why Jerry Bridges, I think, told us in one of his books that he wrote, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Because the gospel reminds us of who we are. We're not highfalutin. We're not all that stuff. We need to think of ourselves the way Paul thought of himself after he got knocked off his high horse. We're not mighty. We're not impressive. We don't cause people to look at us with open mouths and say, wow, look at them. No, we need to think of ourselves the way Paul felt when he got knocked off that horse, pretty lowly. I heard the story of a a young guy just out of Bible college going to preach his first sermon in his home church. He had prepared and studied and prayed, and he was ready. He felt pretty good about it. And when the pastor announced that he was going to come and deliver the message for the morning, that young fellow walked up the aisle of the church and he was feeling so good, so good. And as he stumbled through his prepared prepared remarks, he couldn't find his place. He didn't know where he was at. Everything was all scrambled. He felt so humiliated. Felt like a failure. Felt like, wow, that was a dismal exercise. I made a fool of myself for sure. And he walked from the platform back to his seat after his message. And his head was hung low. He felt so ashamed. The pastor came to him afterwards and said, young fellow, if you would have walked up to the platform the way you would have walked down, if you would have walked up the way you walked down, Christ would have been exalted. You were looking to exalt yourself. You were looking to lift yourself up. People shouldn't be saying, oh, what a wonderful speaker that was. That appeals to our pride. We like that. But how about this? What about people saying, 
What a wonderful Savior we have. Not what a wonderful person I am, but what a wonderful Savior we have. Deep humility, recognizing our bankruptcy before God. The way God uses humility in our lives, the way it is developed, the way it is cultivated, is out of a real, down-to-the-bone self-awareness of our wretchedness, of our impoverished state, of our beggarly state apart from Christ's work in our lives. Pride is at the root of so much conflict in our interpersonal lives, uh, in the life of the church. Always distressing when there's strife and discord, division in a church. And it can always be traced back to pride. It can always be traced back to pride. Look at me. See me. I do this better than anyone else. I'm such a wonderful person. I want to draw your attention to me. I've got my mummer's uniform on with all the plumage and the feathers and bright colors. Everybody's going to take notice of me. Back in colonial and pre-colonial times, you know, when Jesus was talking about humility and he was talking about the way we dress when we go to church, and he said, and men can be guilty of maybe not quite this, but we can be guilty of doing the same thing on a different level. But he said to the ladies about the plating of hair, the plating of hair. Ladies would often come to church with little pearls and little this and little that in their hair, and their hair would be high. I, I, I've seen movies of colonial and pre-colonial times, and I'd see these women, the hair sometimes was this high, literally. It was high. When they came into church, they had to duck to get through the door because their hair was so high. Some of them even had, this isn't a joke, some of them even had little bird nests in their hair. You couldn't miss them. Everybody saw them. That was the point. Their hair, the fashion of their hair, the style of their hair was supposed to communicate something to people about how they'd made it. They were in the upper strata of society. We are somebody. Their hair signaled that. Everybody knew it. I had to think, I wonder if I ever come to church with a bird nest in my hair. <laughs> Do I ever come to church manifesting pride? Do I think I'm better than the next guy because of what I do or who I am or what my family history is? Shame on me. I am related 
by blood to a Savior who was low and despised. Who do I think I am? Only a sinner saved by grace. I love this verse in Psalm 138, verse 6. As though the the Lord is high, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, that's me. He regarded the shepherds, not the theologians, not the Pharisees who had everything nailed down tight who pranced around town, prayed on the street corners for everybody to see, waved their flags. I'm a Pharisee. I've got it all together. Who did Jesus go to in his ministry? He stooped to me. He stooped to you, the downtrodden. The defeated people who want to give up say, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Not compared to that guy. Not compared to that gal. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Right. Right. We are nothings and we are nobodies. We used to sing, we are worms out of our hymn book. But we deleted that because it was an affront to our self-righteous pride for sinners who are worms such as I. You say, that's really pretty pitiful. So what are you doing promoting this beat-yourself-down theology? I don't have to be beaten down. I'm already down. Sin has beaten me down. And it's only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his life that I have anything or that I do anything of eternal value. We used to sing that in Bible college with eternity's values in view. Lord, with eternity's values in view, I will live each day by faith for Jesus with eternal values in view. Not what do you think of me. I like to have people think nice things of me, but I've often heard our pastors say, we don't care what people say about us. Oh, yes, on some level, of course, we care a lot more about what the humble Jesus thinks of us who's been lifted up on high. One day, we will be with him in glory. We will never be him, but we will be with him and behold his glory. The glory when it was manifested to the shepherds out on those fields was so blinding. They couldn't look up. Maybe that's how we should worship. Not so much looking up in any praise of ourselves.
but looking down at the wretchedness that Jesus Christ saved us from. Father, thank you for your life. Thank you for your humility. We fail and we fall short so often because of our lack of humility, because of our pride, sinful, self-righteous pride. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves more like Jesus. To be in his image, to strive after that, not notoriety in this world, but notoriety with you as we want to mirror the life of your son. Thank you for the word that we have to be able to be ministered to week after week after week. I thank you for a church we can come to where we are taught the word of God week after week after week, where we can hold up the mirror of truth and look into it and see our need and see our salvation as only being in Jesus day in and day out day in and day out. Thank you, Lord, for your marvelous grace and your matchless mercy. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.